Well, thank you, Corey, Mary, thank you for uh, Matthew for taking up offering this morning. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible to the book, the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, if you didn't bring a Bible with you to church today, there'll be one in the pew ahead of you. It's hardback and black. We'll be on page 886 of the Pew Bible. We're going to be reading in chapter 1. I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter all the way down to verse 13 of John chapter 1. Although we'll only be working really through verses three, four, four-ish to um, verse 13. The title of my sermon this morning is, In Him is Life. And when you walked in, you received a program. You're welcome to follow along in the backside of that program if you like. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage, then I'll pray. And we'll get to work in this passage. I'll save some time at the end for prayer, uh, some, some time of repentance and reflection and rejoicing in what God has done. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Let's go ahead and read down to verse 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray together. Father, in your light, we see light. In him was life. That life was the light of men. Lord, would you send the word made flesh to us this morning through your spirit. Shine your light on the face of your Son and cause us to see Him and believe in Him and have life in His name through which we will be granted the right to be called children of God. Do this for your sake 
and the sake of those you died for. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Naturalistic explanations of the origins of life on earth maintain that complex, living, information-containing systems arose from random interactions of non-living matter. In other words, non-living things banged into other non-living things enough times that somehow a living thing was made. A lightning bolt struck a pool of primordial chemicals and amino acids were formed and those amino acids bonded together to create the first protein molecule. Which is a problem because protein cannot be created in the presence of oxygen. So one theory is there was no oxygen in the early days of Earth's existence. Which of course would mean that there was no ozone. And without an ozone there was nothing to protect these baby proteins from the ultraviolet death ray of the sun. So if there's no oxygen, life can't start. But if there's no oxygen, life can't start. So they're still working on it. Aside from this is the issue of information. All living things, as you know, contain vast amounts of information. We call it DNA. And DNA, you probably know, is remarkably complex. Yet DNA alone is nothing. You, you, you need a way to read DNA, to interpret DNA, and to transcribe DNA to other organisms. So, I think that's RNA, is the function of RNA, is to read DNA. So you need information for life, and then you need to be able to interpret that information, read it, and, and so you need language for life. You need a way of writing that information for life. So you need an entire language and reading mechanism and a writing mechanism, and then you need an error correction mechanism to fix your mistakes. The question is, Where did all that come from when non-living matter bumped into other non-living matter? They're still working on it. This is not, of course, the biblical worldview. In the biblical worldview, we understand that life begets life. Non-living things don't create living things. Living things create living things. And all living things, according to the Bible, came from one living thing, one living person. In him is life. And that means, friends, life preceded matter. Life preceded matter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God. And the word was life. All things came into being because life made all things. Life preceded matter. That's what Christians believe. What we're going to learn from our passage this morning is that Jesus Christ is life and his life gives life to all who believe and receive him because he is life. So I have three points this morning. The first is Jesus is life. Number two, his life is light. And number three, his light is life. Did you catch that? Today's sermon is brought to you by Dr. Seuss. Let's get to work. Verse four and five. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Some of your Bibles may say, comprehended it. I told you last week, the themes of life and light are common in the fourth gospel. John introduces them here, and he continues to use them throughout his gospel. So it's important for us at the beginning of understanding the gospel of John, for us to Figure out what John means by these two words. They're used so often, we should understand what we're reading when we read them. So what does John mean by life? And what does John mean by light? How does he mean us to understand them? So let's begin with the word life. In the Greek, it is the word zoe. Z-O-E is the transliteration. It is used 36 times in John's gospel, and every time John uses it, he means eternal life. Life after death, life that comes with God in heaven, eternal life. Some examples of this, some common examples that you have memorized. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have what? Everlasting life, same word. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John eleven twenty five, 25, which we looked at last year when we did a series on the I am statements of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live eternal life. So we could go on and on and on. The point is, whenever we read the word life in the gospel of John, he means eternal life. In him was life, eternal life. This verse, verse 4, in your, in your passage this morning, it may be the only possible exception. It may, he may mean physical life here. So when you read John 1, 4, I want you to read it carefully and you determine whether he means eternal life or whether he means physical life. I think he means physical life a little, but mostly eternal life. 
That's what I think. But you're going to find things like this as we move through the Gospel of John. You're going to find passages which are difficult to understand. The wording is strange. It doesn't fit with our brain and our logical way of writing. And it is your job as a Bible student to dig into the Word, to grab a hold of the Gospel of John, and to figure out what the Gospel writer means. It is, it is not an accident that he writes in this way. It is not an accident that he writes cyclically, like says the same thing over again in different ways and says the same same thing twice. And you wonder, why would you do this? You're using an economy of language. You only have a short period of time to write. Why would you write it like this? It is not an accident. God, the Holy Spirit made sure that these words appear as they are. And your English translation is probably the best versions we can do from the original. It was our job to ask, what do these words mean? So you be a good Bible student and you decide whether what I'm about to say is right. You do the work. Don't take my word for it. I'm not the authority. My authority is derivative from these words. You do the work. You find out whether this is right. But from my understanding, when John uses the word life, he always means eternal life with one possible tiny exception, which might be here. We'll come back to that in a moment. What about light? What about light? What does John mean when he uses the word Light. The word appears 23 times in his gospel. It means, usually, the illumination of truth. The illumination to some truth. And it is often contrasted with darkness. Light and darkness are often appearing in the same phrase. And sometimes light is associated with life, as it is in verse 4. But the best example of this is in John 8, 12, where, this is the words of Jesus, he says, I am the light. Of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Okay, so there's the contrast, but will have the light of life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Again, light means illumination to truth. So look at verse 4 again. If you're a good Bible student, You don't just accept these things for what they are. You ask questions of the text. And you look at verse 4 and you think to yourself probably, if light means illumination to truth, then why? It seems he has light and life flip-flopped in this verse. Shouldn't it say something more like, in him was light and the light was the life of men? Because if If we are told to believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing in him, we will have life. If by believing precedes life, then doesn't he have it backwards? Doesn't understanding come before eternal life? So what do we do with this tricky little verse? It's not an accident that it appears like this. So we have work to do. But you're a good Bible student. And so what you do when you find a difficult text, you don't give up. It's too hard. I can't understand it. You dig in. And you look at context. So you go back to verse 3. Where it says, All things were made through him. That's the word, the eternal word, Jesus Christ. And without him was not anything made that was made. So verse 3 
is talking about creation, when God created the heavens and the earth. And so verse 4, in context, is talking about creation. That's why, I th- that's why I said earlier that I think this might be the only exception where life is referring to physical life. But it gets more interesting when we press in on this verse. So hang on to verse 4 and verse 3 together. Keep those in your mind. I'm going to read to you the biblical account of creation. The first few verses in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And I want you to listen as I read and see if you might figure out why John says in him was life and the life was the light of men and not in him was light and the light was the life of men. Okay? See if you can hear what what John is doing by putting the words in that order. Is everyone with me? We're trying to figure out why John is talking life and light and putting them in that order. This is Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. In the beginning, there was God. Life precedes matter. In the beginning, there was life. God, life. And life created life, and the way life created life was, let there be light. The way God created life was through sending light. Life created life by sending light. And that seems to be what John is doing in this passage. Life comes from light. God created life from non-living things by sending his light. I think John is showing us that God does the same thing with eternal life. God looks upon our dead souls. God looks upon us in our darkness. God looks upon us as we've been killed by sin, enslaved to sin. And he says, let there be light. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The way God creates eternal life is by sending his effectual light. The Apostle Paul picks up on this, just like John did, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You're welcome to go there if you like. 2 Corinthians is, is going to be that way in your Bible. And it'll be a few, I don't know, four, four books that way, that way. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to be reading verse 3 down to verse Six, things like this get me excited. Some guys get excited about football and wrestling. I get excited about Bible cross-referencing, but it is what it is. Second Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 3. I'm going to read down to verse 6. 
This is what the Apostle Paul says about life and light and eternal life. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake. Verse six. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Did you see how Paul describes your conversion? You're going from death to life. God looked upon your dead soul and said, let there be light. And there was life. The way God created life on earth by sending his light and the way God created life in your dead soul was by sending his light and the darkness could not overcome it. Light prevailed and you were saved. Back to John chapter one. John is going to explain this process of God creating life in you in a little bit more detail. Jesus' life is light, verses 6 to 11. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not the gospel writer John, this is John the baptizer, who's never called John the baptizer, by the way, in John's gospel. In all the other gospels, he gets the title of John the Baptist, but here in this Gospel, John does not mention his title other than just naming him John. In the beginning, um, then a man came. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. When God sent Jesus, the light of the world, into the world, he first sent a man named John. John the baptizer, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, Bible know he was a loud preacher and Jesus' first cousin John's ministry was to bear witness about the light, about Jesus. He was not the light, but he was just told, bear witness about the light. I love John the baptizer. He killed a camel and wore its skin, ate bugs, and yelled at people to repent of sin. Pretty much my hero. And... Sadly, we don't have time to get into John the Baptizer today. We'll talk about him in a couple of weeks. What we need to know about John in this particular passage is that John was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. His entire ministry was to point to Jesus. 
And to not point to himself, but to point to Jesus. John the Baptist was heralding the Lord's arrival. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Remember, God creates eternal life by sending his effectual light. And Jesus, the true light of God, came to give light. And some translations may say enlighten. He came to give light to everyone. Now, we shouldn't get hung up on that word, everyone. John often uses these universal terms. It doesn't mean like everyone becomes a Christian. In the beginning, well, I mean, we just read John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The world, world is difficult to interpret there. What does he mean by world? This is one of those. So it doesn't mean, obviously, that everyone, he came to give light to everyone. It doesn't mean that everyone gets saved. The reason we know that that's not the case is because the next two verses clearly say there were those that did not receive him. They rejected him. Here's what it means. It means that Jesus came to give light to everyone, regardless of who they were, regardless of whether they... It doesn't matter their socioeconomic background. It doesn't matter um, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, any ethnic origin, red, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his sight. He came to give life to all people, all people, even Steelers fans, all people, which is something I need to be reminded of occasionally. God, Jesus died for some Steelers fans. Just a few. It means that God gives every person a witness about himself. Every person, regardless of where they were born, when they were born, they have an internal understanding that there is a God, and they have an external understanding that there is a God. Romans 1 and 2 says that we, we have witness in creation itself, that there is a creator. We have a witness on the inside. It's called a conscience. And Romans 1 says, everyone knows God. No one has an excuse to say, I didn't know. And this knowledge of God that God gives to every person has to be suppressed. The truth about God cannot be ignored, but it can be and often is suppressed. And this is what we find so often in the world we live in. One example I found interesting this week was reading a brave and honest explanation of the suppression of truth from one of the world's leading evolutionary biologists who writes this. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, we are forced by our adherence to material causes 
No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. End quote. I appreciate that honesty, but it is a sad suppression of the truth. Jesus comes to everyone, no matter who they are. But as we will see in verse 10 and 11, not everyone receives him. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus came to the world and even though he was the creator of the world, the world did not know him. You know, the greatest miracle in the history of the world has to be the incarnation. Incarnation is, the, is a word we use for uh, putting on flesh, which is how we describe what God did in Christ. That Jesus came into our world, the God of heaven and the God of earth. The eternal word became flesh. He wrapped his divine personhood in a human body. The Lord Jesus, God from God, became human. It's staggering. He ate food. He drank wine. He got tired. He felt pain. He cried when he was sad. And his body died. It's staggering. Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven, the presence of the Father and the angels, and became a man to save you and I, so that we would have the light for eternal life. It's unbelievable, the condescension of the one true God. So he came to his own, John says, and his own did not receive him. Probably John means here his own, being his own people, the people of Israel. You remember from earlier parts of the Bible that God chose a people for himself. And to those people, he gave his word. To those people, he gave the prophets. To those people, he gave miracles and providence. And he promised to send them a Messiah. A king who would rule the world. And yet that king came to them in human form. And they did not recognize him. He stood on the very soil he gave to them. And they did not receive him. The king of kings, the son of David, came to Israel. And in chapter 19 those people he came to said, we have no king but Caesar. The reality is cornerstone, that same king has come to you. Will you receive him? Will you believe on him? He has shined his light upon you today. Will you open your eyes and see and believe and live? 
Look what happens when you do. Verse 12, Jesus, light is life. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In your Bible, that word receive means to take hold of or to collect. And to believe in his name means more than just acknowledging that he exists. To believe means, in John's language, to believe in the whole person and the whole ministry of that person, the whole character of that person. Those who receive Jesus and who believe in him, he gives the right to become children of God. He gives the right to become children of God. Do you understand what a massive statement that is? Among the rights and privileges given to men, child of God is the greatest. There are millions, I'm sure, who would kill, even give their own lives for the title of CEO or chairman or president. Blood has been spilled. Siblings have been poisoned in order to gain the title of king or queen. But we, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we have been given the title of son and daughter of God. Greater, grander, more lasting title than king or president or CEO. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ, God gives the right to become children of God. It's interesting because that means... By believing in Jesus, you become, you get the right to become a child of God. That means you're not a child of God until you do. You have to become a child of God. Those who have put their faith in Jesus become children of God. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson clarifies it well when he says, this is the basic assumption of the Christian gospel. That we are not by nature children of God. We need to become his children. By nature we are alienated from God. We show all the signs of rebelling against him and turning away from his fatherly rule of our lives. End quote. So we must become children of God. And this takes place when we turn from our sins and place our faith in Jesus. He gives us the right to become his children. Now, we have a word in English for this, don't we? Becoming someone's child. The word is adoption. It's a beautiful, wonderful, glorious picture of the gospel. The Bible tells us that without Jesus, we are nothing. We are no one. First Peter 2 says, you're not a people. Ephesians 2 says, 
says even harsher than that. Ephesians 2, according to Ephesians 2, we are separated from Christ. We are alienated from God's people. We are strangers to God's covenants. We have no hope. We are without God in the world. Essentially, friends, before Christ, you were spiritually orphans, enslaved, and held captive to sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, he came to the orphanage. And he looked upon you, dear orphan. And he saw you. And he loved you. And he paid the price to redeem you out of that place. And make you his own. He paid the price. He filled out the paperwork. And the price he paid was the life of his own son. That's what it cost God to make you son or daughter. When we think about what God did to save us, to make us his own, it should cause, I think, at least two responses. Two responses. Two profound responses to the gospel of adoption. To when we put faith in Jesus and he makes us a son or a daughter of God. How does that what, is it, what does God expect to come out of us when we do this? What should be the right response? A couple I can think of. There are probably many more, but these are two that I have for you. The first is humility, and the second is gratitude. It should cause deep humility. Look at verse 13. You were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. But what does your Bible say? Of God. You were born of God. What did you do to deserve adoption? What about you moved your God to adopt you? To choose you? Did he want your last name? Was it your lineage he was after? The Wellman heritage? Was that what he wanted? More Wellmans in heaven? No. Verse 13 says, it's not a blood. Were you cuter than the other orphans? (laughs) Did God look at you and think, more capable than the others. Better athletic ability, better fast twitch muscle fiber, better work ethic. I need somebody in this kingdom who has great work ethic. Is that the reason he chose you? No, verse 13 says, it's not the will of the flesh. Maybe it was because you were smarter. God chose you because you were smart enough to pick him. And of all the gods in the universe, I picked that one. And God looked at you and said, ah, that's a good orphan. I'm glad you picked me. 
Now I choose you. That's not how adoption works. God chose you because he chose to choose you. Orphans don't get adopted by the will of the orphan. But by the will of the parent. So it's not the will of man either. Ephesians 1 says, the reason God chose you is because you were predestined to adoption. If you are a child of God today, it is because God sent his son, his light to you. And he created eternal life in you. And you became his. And this wasn't based on anything you've done, but everything that he did. And this should humble us deeply. Additionally, and lastly, the reality of God shining his light on us and making us his own should cause us to be profoundly grateful. And grateful people act a particular way. Don't they? If grace means anything, then it means that God saved you not because of anything you did or ever will do, but simply because He is gracious. And that fact alone should cause every one of us to be, to live our lives in such a way that is Christ exalting and risk taking. As an adoptive child of God, you have a new father. You have a new name. You have a new identity. And with that new identity comes a new purpose. You also have a new family. Look to your left and to your right and meet your new family. The church of Jesus Christ a scruffy, ragtag group of orphans that God has chosen to adopt. And no one in this room is worthy of being adopted any more than you are. We are saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, so there's no reason to boast. New father, new, new family, a new identity, and a new purpose. If you are a child of God, then the way you became a child of God must mean that a life in response to God choosing you ought to break ties with the old way of living, ought to break ties with living for yourself. And start living for your Father who chose you and His purposes. And His purposes are these, friends. To bring glory to His grace in the salvation and adoption of other orphans through the proclamation of His Word. Which most of the time comes through your lips. If you're a child of God, 
you get to take up the occupation of saving souls. Of being the means through which God makes orphans his children. Going into the spiritual orphanages of your life, like your workplace and your families, and telling the orphans there, God loves you. And Jesus died to make you his own. And see if maybe they'll see the light as you have. It's a privilege that all of us get to do this life on mission. This privilege of sharing the gospel. And I think we would be fools if we didn't take it up. I think we would be fools if we didn't take the privilege of sharing the love of Jesus with our friends and neighbors, family. Pastor Jamie, what if they reject me? You're a child of God. You're accepted by the king of the universe and creator of all things. And that will never change. What's there to be afraid of? Our standing in God through Christ ought to create fearlessness. Accompanied by boldness. What can they do? We're going to throw you in jail. More time to pray. What, are they going to kill you? You get to see Jesus quicker. Whether I live or whether I die, it's Christ. You keep me living, I'm going to preach Jesus. If you kill me, I get to see Jesus. Fearless boldness. Because you're a child of the King. Every single one of us. What a privilege that we have. What a privilege. In the end, naturalism fails at all these points. Life begets life. You were not made by a lightning strike on primordial chemicals. You were made by a lightning of God's Son saying, let there be light in your heart. And there was life. This means you will never find your purpose. You will never find life from the natural world because it can't give it to you. You have to go beyond the natural world to Jesus who is life. To find that life that is the light of men. And now as a child of God, you have found that purpose. And you have the privilege of living for that purpose. And bringing other orphans into the family of God. Let's pray. In your light, we see Light in your son is life, and his life is the light of men. 
Lord, if there is someone in this room who is not a child of God, as Matt prayed earlier, make them one. Bring them to repentance, to confessing their sins, to trusting in Jesus, and give them everlasting life. But for those who have been given this privilege and adoption, Lord, I pray your word would bear fruit and send your people into the world this week to proclaim the life who is the light of men, to shine light into dark places, to share the privilege with the rest of the family of God of proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the name of Jesus, to which is salvation. I pray that you would do this for their sake and for your glory. Amen.